Okay, we're in 1 Samuel chapter 10. And in this chapter, God confirms his choice of a king for Israel. He's already confirmed it to this man, Saul, so that Saul would know, I chose you. You're my man. You are responsible to me. This is not your idea. This is my idea. Now God is going to confirm his choice to all the nation so that they are going to know this is God's choice for a king. He didn't vote himself into the job and decide to take over. This comes from God. And the thing about Saul is he is an impressive guy. But impressive isn't what makes him effective in his first big emergency as king. It's what the Holy Spirit does in him that makes him effective as a king. And this is a practical demonstration of what it says in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We get a practical demonstration of what this means and how it works in these chapters here. So I'm reading in chapter 10 of 1 Samuel from verse 14. Then Saul's uncle said to him and his servant, where did you go? And he said, to look for the donkeys. When we saw that they were nowhere to be found, we went to Samuel. And Samuel's uncle said, tell me, please, what Samuel said to you. So Samuel, Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom, he did not tell him what Samuel had said. Then Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the children of Israel, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all kingdoms and from those who oppressed you. But you have today rejected your God, who himself saved you from all your adversaries adversities and your tribulations, and you have said to him, no, set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was chosen. When he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, the family of Matri was chosen. And Saul, the son of Kish, was chosen. But when they sought him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, Has the man come here yet? And the Lord answered, There he is, hidden among the equipment. So they ran and brought him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen, that there is no one like him among all the people? So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king! So 
we see here that Saul allows God to make him king. And he doesn't tell his uncle everything that happened. Because would his uncle believe him? Yeah, we couldn't find the donkeys. We talked to Samuel. He said, don't worry about them. And by the way, you are king of Israel. Think his uncle would believe that? I don't even know if Saul believes it. Would anybody believe him? God has to make Saul king. So here's Samuel calling all of Israel together at this one place, Mizpah. And he starts off by telling him, all of Israel, you are making a mistake. By the word of the Lord, he recounts their history. And he says, you know what? God has been saving you ever since Egypt from every single adversary and difficult situation you've ever had. And that's like hundreds of years since they came up out of Egypt. And see, this is one reason why you need to read your Bible. Because it's history. Samuel is recounting their history, what happened to them. And see, if you forget your history and where you've come from, then you're actually doomed to repeat your past. And this is what's going to happen to Israel. So he's reminding them of their history. God is a God of history. Have you noticed how people are rewriting history as we go nowadays? And they're emphasizing different things that aren't as important, didn't happen. One of the things they're doing in the United States is instead of saying, you know, the country started in 1776 with the Declaration of Independence, they're going back to 1619 when they started bringing in slaves. And they're saying, this is what America is really all about. It's about slavery and oppression. And all white people are inherently racist. Now, that's a rewrite of history. It really is. And it's almost like it was in 1984, the book by George Orwell, where the, the hero of the story, the protagonist, his job is to rewrite history as they tell him to. So this nation was an enemy, now it's a friend. So rewrite history. It's always been a friend. And that kind of junk is happening right now. If we don't remember our history, we're going to forget who we are. And here's Samuel recounting Israel's history. Where did God ever fall short? Where did he ever fail them? And yet he says, today you're turning away from him. Now, what this means is Samuel is a faithful witness, whether anyone believes him or not. People are going to know that he spoke the word of God in truth. They've been warned. Now, you know, you might feel funny when you talk to somebody about Jesus, and they didn't accept Jesus right on the spot. They didn't say, please, sir, tell me how I should be saved. They just kind of go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. 
and you leave saying, nothing happened. But see, something did happen. You spoke the word of God, and it is true, and that is significant. So you don't have to worry about how people react or they don't like me. I better not talk about this anymore. Doesn't make any difference. You know what you're doing? You're being faithful. And that's all that God wants. He didn't say, be successful. He said, be faithful. And as you just tell people about Jesus, you're being faithful. You've done your job. Everybody get that? So here's Samuel basically telling Israel, this is a big mistake, and nobody believes him. That's fine. He's being faithful. Now, in this process, what the priests are doing are using what is called the Urim and the Thummim that the high priest had as part of his garments and all. It was a way to inquire of God. And because we don't know any more about it, it seems like it's a way of casting lots. And God gives the answer. So all 12 tribes are there in front of Samuel. And they cast the Urim and the Thummim and Benjamin. Those are the guys. So now they bring all the families in Benjamin, keep throwing it. Oh, may try. And it comes down to this. This one guy, Saul, son of Kish, he's the guy. Now you think, wait a sec, that's just coincidence. And yet the Lord is even Lord over coincidence. He's sovereign. And you can't take sovereignty away from God. So they're going like this, and God's going like, like that. Because he's God, and it comes up the way he wants it to. He is the king chosen by God. And so they go, well, where is he? And again, it's like, I am going to become king? I could imagine not wanting to be visible. So they go, well, where is he? And God says, well, he's over in the baggage, all the equipment. And... When they find Saul and he stands up, it's this exciting moment. Because in the description, in the very beginning, about Saul, it says that he was taller than anybody in Israel, and he was the handsomest guy in Israel. Now, how do you prove that? You prove it at a situation where all of Israel is present. And there he is sitting in the baggage. And when he gets up, he gets up. And they go, wow, look at him. He's the tallest guy in Israel. All of Israel is there. They can check it out. And wow, even Samuel gets carried away in the moment. And he says there, do you see him? There's no one like him. Now, that's understandable. And it's impressive. And this is what Israel was wanting. Give us a king like all the nations. Somebody impressive. That when he waves from the balcony, we all swoon. 
we go, oh. And they're just, I mean, even Samuel is carried away. And he just said, this is a bad idea. But he's caught up in the excitement of the moment. He's a guy too, right? So it's an amazing time. Now, in verse 25, Samuel explained to the people the behavior of royalty, wrote it up in a book, and laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. Now, what that is, is what a king can do and what he can't do. And these things are actually laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 17. And what Samuel has done is write it up, you notice. So we have this contemporary record. This isn't like an oral history passed down among generations until somebody who could write wrote it down. Samuel wrote it up. This is history. And then he sends everybody home. In verse 26, it says, And Saul also went home to Gibeah, and valiant men went with him, whose hearts God had touched. But some rebels said, How can this man save us? So they despised him and brought him no presents, but he held his peace. Now, these are two responses to the king. And that is to either be for him or to be against him. Valiant men went with him. The word can mean wealthy men, powerful men, probably both. Because you had to be somebody back then. And it's interesting that a king cannot govern by himself. He's got to have a group of capable men around him. And you hope even more capable than himself. Wouldn't it be tough if you're called to be king and everybody around you who's supposed to carry out your policies is kind of incapable and they need your help? How are you going to get anything done? I think if I were going to be king, I would hope that everybody around me is smarter than me and more capable than me. Because then we can consult, and then we can do things, and they'll get done. Otherwise, do you see a king running around and making sure that everything is done? I don't think it would work like that. But what I think is interesting here is that these men are not motivated by Saul's attributes of height or handsomeness. They're motivated because God touched their hearts. Now, these guys could be more capable and smarter than Saul. I'm going to assume they are. The text doesn't say so. But just think about it. Wealthy, powerful men, capable and God touches their hearts to the extent that they say, you know what? I could be doing my own thing, but I'm going to do everything I can to get that guy where he needs to be. I am going to submit myself to him 
and I'm going to support him. So they submit themselves and they give them themselves to Saul for the Lord's sake. And that means the Lord is building Saul's government by his spirit. Now, it's a wonderful thing to have help. One time when I was meditating on a verse, and it was really kind of striking. It says, the Lord is among those who help me. Isn't that funny? The Lord is among those who help me. So I thought about it. Who are the people that help me? And I was really kind of staggered that I came up with a huge list of people who helped me. And it was funny because I tend to think, you know, I'm an endangered species. I'm all by myself. I live in a cardboard box in front of the Army and Navy store. And I realized I have a lot of people who help me. And then among this group of people who help me stands the Lord God Almighty of Israel. And I go, wow, that's amazing. Why are all those people there? Because all help comes from God. All help. Now, you think about all the people that help you. And if you do that, realize they're there because God is your helper. Do you get that? And remember to thank God for these people. Thank God for them. Now, there's another response to Saul, and that is despise him and dishonor him. There in verse 27, they translate this word as rebels. Uh, I use another translation to study, and it just says worthless men. But it's interesting, these two words. These men are worthless, first of all, because they're rebelling against God. And so because they're in rebellion against God, their hearts aren't going to be touched by God to say, oh, what can I do for the new king? How can I submit myself to him? They're in rebellion against God. They're saying, hey, God can go jump in a lake for all I care. That's why they would say, well, look at this pinhead. Why should I support him? Why should I support anybody? Hey, I'm here for myself. That's what makes a worthless person. I'm only here for myself. What God counts as a worthy thing is when you lay down your life to help somebody else get where they need to be. Parents do that for their children. And you do that for people around you. To lay your life down for somebody else is worthy. That's what God does. But to just live for yourself, what's worthy about that? I mean, so what if you stay out of trouble, pay your taxes, and, you know, don't get in anybody's way? Of what value are you to somebody else? Still, 
insignificant, unworthy. See? So these guys are worthless. And you notice that they're not neutral. If they're not for Saul, they're despising him. If they're not a help, they're a hindrance. If they're not for him, they're against him. Get that? That's why Jesus said, if you're not for me, you're against me. And even nice people who pay their taxes and keep their noses out of everybody else's business, that's why they're against Jesus. Because they're not for him. There's no such thing as neutrality. And even nice people, if they're not for Jesus, they're against him. And everybody gets to examine themselves and say, okay, am I for Jesus? It's common to say, well, I'm not against him. Okay, are you for him? Not exactly. Well, then what's that? I refuse to play. I don't care. What's that? So, notice that, again, that Saul is supported by guys that God has touched. They're not all saying, wow, tall is so cool. I got to support this guy. Or, he's so fun to look at. I could look at him for hours. He's such a gorgeous guy. Can I be your assistant of sanitation just so I can look at you? None of those attributes help Saul. It's because the Lord is doing something. So then in chapter 11, we have Saul's first big emergency, a baptism of fire, as it were. Then Nahash the Ammonite came up and encamped against Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a covenant with us and we will serve you. And Nahash the Ammonite answered them, On this condition I will make a covenant with you, that I may put out all your right eyes and bring reproach on all Israel. Then the elders of Jabesh said to him, Hold off for seven days, that we may send messengers to all the territory of Israel. And then if there is no one to save us, we will come out to you. So the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul and told the news in the hearing of the people. And all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now there was Saul coming behind the herd from the field. And Saul said, what troubles the people that they weep? And they told him the words of the men of Jabesh. Then the Spirit of God came upon Saul when he heard this news, and his anger was greatly aroused. So he took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, Whoever does not go out with Saul and Samuel to battle, so it shall be done to his oxen. And the fear of the Lord fell on all the people, and they came out with one consent. When he numbered them in Bezek, the children of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who came, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, 
Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have help. Then the messengers came and reported it to the men of Jabesh, and they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we'll come out to you, and you may do with us whatever seems good to you. So it was on the next day that Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and killed Ammonites until the heat of the day, and it happened that those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is he who said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has accomplished salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they made sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. So here's the first big emergency. Here comes Nahash the Ammonite from the nearby nation of Ammon. And he attacks Jabesh Gilead. Why does he do this? Does he need more land? Does he need booty and spoil? And he just wants to rob crops and take all their livestock? No. He doesn't like Israel, and he wants to insult Israel. So he says, I'll let you live if you all let me put your right eye out. And what that means is they can never fight back against anybody ever again, because when you got your shield and your sword, that covers your left eye. You have to be able to see with your right. But if you can't see it with your right, then you, you have to fight undefended, and you're at a disadvantage. So what this means is that Nahash is a bully, and nothing more than a bully. He has nothing better to do than degrade and distress Israel. Can you imagine a more worthless occupation? I'm going to pick on you because I can. Now, I looked up the word bully in my dictionary. Even if you know what a word means, look it up anyway. It's going to be surprising. My dictionary says a bully causes to do, causes someone to do something by force. They compel people to do things they don't want to do by force or coercion. They compel an action or choice by threat or force. They use language or behavior that is cruel, insulting, threatening, or aggressive. Now, bullies are invariably cowards. They don't have the courage of their convictions. When they've got all the odds on their side and all the muscle, why, they're rough and tough. But when they don't have the muscle on their side, then they're weenies. Because I think about the government of Canada right now. 
that the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, is so tough, and he wants to compel the Canadians to take the vaccine. And he's vocal about this, and he even calls the people who oppose him fringe minority fanatics and fascists. And what these people did then was put together the longest convoy in the history of the world. 1,500 miles of truckers assembled and went to the capital of Canada in Ottawa. You know what Justin Trudeau did? He fled. And he said, I was in the presence of someone who tested positive for COVID, therefore I'm self-isolating. And I hope people remember that one forever. Because he did not have the courage of his convictions. And when 1,500 miles of truckers show up to oppose him, he flees. And what he's demonstrating is he's a bully. And when he doesn't have the arm of government with him, he's a coward. Now, you know, President Macron in France, he's a bully. He's going to make the unvaccinated suffer. Oh, that's tough. And Joe Biden is a bully. They're all unloving. Let me point this out. Love is not rude. Love is not a bully. And so Justin Trudeau is unloving. Joe Biden is unloving. Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand is a bully. She's unloving. Did you hear that there's a, a pregnant reporter in Afghanistan? She wants to come home to New Zealand, and Jacinda Ardern says no. We have to protect the people of New Zealand from one pregnant woman. And people pushed back on that so much that she was embarrassed. And she says, okay, you can come back. She is a bully. And she's unloving. Something is really wrong when you don't do everything in love. Now this guy... Nahash, he's so confident that he actually lets Jabesh Gilead send out messengers asking for help in Israel. And when Israel hears, you notice um, there in verse 4, all the people lifted up their voices and wept. Now this means poor Jabesh Gilead, they're dead, they're all goners. They're weeping like it's already happened. All that power, nobody can stand up to them. They're gone. Oh, dear. But when Saul hears about it, in verse 6, the Spirit of God came upon Saul. And what that means is, the original language has the force of the Spirit of the Lord broke forth upon him and rushed upon him with force. You could translate it, came mightily upon him. And he was angry. 
He was angry. Now, this is the Lord's indignation. For when somebody picks on somebody and oppresses and bullies, God gets indignant. Now, that's a word describing a certain kind of anger. It's the kind of anger you see when something not right is going on. And it's unjust. And it shouldn't happen. And bullies who are cowards should not pick on people just because they can. And this is the way God feels. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon Saul, he gets angry. And he becomes so angry that he actually takes a yoke of oxen and cuts them up into pieces, gives them out to messengers, and he says, you tell everybody, you come here and fight, or else your ox is going to end up like this. Do you hear my voice? And they all do. See, Jabesh, I'm sorry, Nahash, Nahash the Ammonite isn't loving. And that's God's reaction. I am angry. So this indignation of the Lord inspires fear in people. It's the fear of the Lord. There in verse 7, the fear of the Lord fell on the people and they came out with one consent. As one man, I'm here. Because Saul couldn't say, well, that's too bad for Jabesh. That's their fight, but it's not my fight. As king, he's got to think, you know, that's Jabesh Gilead today. It's going to be some other village tomorrow. And we can't say, this is somebody else's fight. We have to have community and stand up and push back and say, no way. Now, you know, one of the things about this bullying thing going on all over the world is it makes people afraid to push back. Everybody's been isolated because of lockdowns. And people have lost the sense of community. People have even gone out of the habit of coming to church where there is one community that's really strengthening but if people don't come to church, then they're going to lose that sense of, you know, there are people around me who support me, and I support them. And I've been listening to different podcasts and reading different articles, and see, without a support group of love and sticking up for one another, people are vulnerable, and they knuckle under to bullies. Well, Saul says, you know what? This isn't Jabesh's fight. It is our fight. And they all show up. And they wipe out the Ammonites. And see, this is all accomplished by the Spirit of the Lord. That is, there's tremendous motivation and focus and unity. There's victory over the enemy. There's even mercy 
and forgiveness. They say, anybody who says Saul can't be king, we're going to kill you now. And he says, don't do that. Let's show everybody mercy because this is what the Lord did. And then there's submission, voluntary submission to the king and to God. They make Saul king again. Let's do it again. Let's all submit to him. Let's all submit to God. That happened because of the Holy Spirit. And they have great joy. They're rejoicing in victory. Saul, the kingdom, God, peace, unity. And none of it happened because Saul was tall or he was handsome. It happened because of the Spirit of God. So that scripture in Zechariah that says, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. That is for the real world that we live in right now. The principle is we put God first and we do everything that we do in his spirit. Now that means we do everything in love. Now, I know that we have practical things we got to do. When God spoke those words to Zerubbabel, he was supposed to rebuild the temple of God. It was in ruins to start with. There was so much ruins and rubble, people were getting discouraged from building. We have to do a lot of work before we even lay one stone. It's too much. So he had to clear away rubble, get building supplies, organize labor, defend against enemies while they're building, and motivate people to get involved. And we also have to respond to wickedness. We have to accomplish practical things. We have jobs. We have families. And in our families are people that we need to support. We have to get things done, don't we? I got things I got to do. It takes real work. And you think, well, do you just, you know, get down and pray really hard, God, do something by your spirit? No, somebody's got to do it. But this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is how it played out with Saul. Not by might not by power, it's what is accomplished by my spirit. Now, the spirit of God works in us through the love of God in our hearts. That is always put together with the Holy Spirit. For example, in Romans 5, verse 5, it says, Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And you know, love is not a thing. Love is a person. That's what the Holy Spirit communicates to us when he's poured out in our hearts. So I find it interesting that God is not a bully. 
He doesn't threaten and coerce. He doesn't say things to make you feel bad, to motivate you, beat you over the head, make you feel good and guilty. Then he's going to get some real work out of you. He doesn't work like that. Honestly, God does not make you lay down your life for him. He's the opposite of all those bullies. He laid down his life for you. That's what makes him different. It says in 1 John 4, verse 10, In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you ever doubt that God loves you, you can always look at the cross and see Jesus bound there, a living and holy sacrifice, and say, he did that for me. That is the visible demonstration that God loves me. So he pours out mercy on us first, and forgiveness first, and that love of God in our hearts first. And then he says, do you love me? Which is a good question. If you love me, why don't you feed my sheep? Or love those people in Congo. Or save unborn lives. Or resist bullies. Or love your neighbors. Or tell somebody about Jesus. If you ever feel like I do, a lot, like, I don't want to do this, then why don't you say first, would you pour out your love in my heart? Would you say, God, please love me because I'm, I'm fresh out. I haven't got any. And God will do this wonderful thing, pour out his love in your heart through the Holy Spirit. That's what I feel like sometimes. But I can't go that high. Because then I can do everything that God wants me to do. And it's okay. Now, when we think about following and serving Jesus, we got two kind of attitudes. One is, hey, I'm capable. I'm smart. I can play an instrument. I've got skills and abilities. I'll go ahead and serve God with what I've got. And sometimes we'll even think, God is kind of lucky he's got me on, my, on his side. I can do things. Or the other way to respond is to say, well, I'm ugly and I can't play an instrument and I'm not very good at anything. So please excuse me. Please excuse Robbie today, signed his mother. And both of those attitudes are not right. And this has been a hard thing for me to learn. But what I've learned over the years 
is that God does not need any of my skills and never has. That's not why he has me working for him. The only thing that counts is what happens through his spirit. Because you remember, if I, um, if I have the tongues of men of angels but don't have love, I'm just a big noise that hurts. And if I have all gifts and abilities but I don't have love, I am nothing. And if I give my body to be burned and feed the poor and all that junk but I don't have love, it profits me nothing. So a person who's filled with skills and abilities and stuff still accomplishes nothing without love. But see, everything that's done in love lasts forever. That is eternal. So what it demands instead is that we say to God, here I am. Please work in me by your spirit. What do you want? And you don't say, well, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. Really? Like, God can do anything. And there's no limit with him. So it really comes down to, what does he want? So... Let me ask you this. Has the Spirit of the Lord touched your heart to follow Jesus? Because that's what it really takes, you know. Think about this. He is your Lord, your King. Has the, the Spirit of the Lord touched your heart to say, I want to support him and get him anywhere he needs to be? Because if he's not your Lord, he's not your Savior. The two go together. So if he is your Savior, then you call him Lord, and you say, what do you want? Anything you want. And like I say, if you say, honestly, I really don't want to do this, then you're behind on letting God love you. Why don't you let God love you? and receive from him. And then you're going to think like God thinks. You're going to feel like he feels. And you're not going to say, well, what can I do? I'm only one person. Because numbers don't mean anything to God. One person can deliver an entire nation. There is no difference. There's no limitation with God. But for sure, what you will do is oppose bullies. And you will have compassion on the lost like God. And then you're going to know the peace and the joy of the Holy Spirit. You know, when I think about these Canadian truckers, they do have the courage of their convictions because they're driving into Ottawa thinking, I could get arrested, I could get slammed into prison, I don't know where I'm going to end up. But I found an interesting entry in one of the news stories, and that is a bunch of them were all together praying the Lord's Prayer as they're doing this trip. You think, yes, 
That is why they have the ability to stand up against a bully and call him out and actually make him flee. Because you don't fear the ones who can just kill you, and after that, they can't do anything. You fear him who, after he is killed, can cast the soul into hell. See, those of us who believe in Jesus, we know where we're going. And if you want to slam me into prison, I will start a new prison ministry. And if you want to kill me, I'm done, legitimately. And the sooner the better. Because I have a hope that no bully can take away. No bully government can take away your citizenship to heaven. So, God bless the people who trust in the Lord and do everything they do in love. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Thank you that you're not afraid of bullies. And I thank you, Lord, that you're the one who makes us adequate to serve you. It's not what we bring to the table. It's what you do in us. Share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We have a hope that goes beyond this world. We thank you, Lord, that though all the governments of the world take their stand against you and say, let us throw away their cords and their chains, you say, yet I will install my king on my holy hill. Though all the governments of the world are against you, you're still going to come back and you're, you're going to establish your kingdom. We thank you and praise you for that. We pray that we would honor you as king. And we pray that you would come upon us by your Holy Spirit. If there's anyone who hasn't received Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would draw them by loving kindness to trust in Jesus who died for their sins and rose again from the dead. But we pray, Lord, that you would use us even now in these last days to resist evil and to do your work while it is still day. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.